Welcome to the Bell Tale Rugby Podcast with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendry. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Hello and welcome to another episode of Bell Tale Rugby. Not really another episode, it's, it's a new episode, I guess. I was, was going to say, you can't say another episode because it's our first episode. <laughs> Technically our first episode, we've rebranded again. I was going to say another episode of Inside Ulster, but we're not Inside Ulster anymore, so don't search for that on Twitter. We are now Belltale Rugby. More names than Prince. <laughs> the, the, po- the podcast formerly known as, formerly known as, formerly known as, formerly known as, now Belltale Rugby. <laughs> yeah, that should be our, our tagline. Um, but yes, welcome to Belltale Rugby. Uh, my name is Neve Campbell and as always I'm joined by Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley and sports reporter Adam McKendry, who are both back to full health this week. We're all back. We finally have our full complement again after what feels like a month. I Whenever know. you text this morning, Eva, I was like, she's 100% sick. I, don't know. <laughs> I, had to, I had to reschedule to a later time, but I was like, no, I'm, I'm well, healthy enough, I think, to troop on. Um, but yeah, obviously, running order wise, number one this week, we're going to be chatting about, yes, the fact that they've done it, what we all predicted, to be fair. Ireland have won their fourth Grand Slam in emphatic fashion with a final Six Nations win against England on St. Patrick's weekend. And what a way to tee up the competition ahead of the World Cup later this summer, which we'll be chatting a wee bit about too. We'll also be analysing all the major talking points from that game, including the controversial, somewhat red card decision given to England's Freddie Stewart, as well as looking ahead to Ulster's URC clash in Belfast against the Bulls this weekend. But first, Ireland. It wasn't exactly like a steamroll victory from the start, like everyone thought it was maybe going to be because of the sort of embarrassing defeat England had to France, Johnny, but a, a great performance by the end. Yeah, I mean... Overall, through the five games, um, it was as dominant a Grand Slam as you'll see. Like you're talking about, really, the Kane Healy messed up tap and go, or the James Ryan to James Lowe offload going to hand. If either of those things happen, then you're talking about five bonus point wins from five games. They were definitely not at their best on. Saturday, definitely nerves got to them. Uh, the sense of occasion, maybe the sense of history, whatever you want to call it. Um, a lot of things that they have been very good at were not sticking. Um, even when you see, you know, Tag Furlong, who we also think is probably the best passing prop in the world, um, putting a number of balls on the ground, you could probably tell pretty early that this wasn't the Ireland team that we had seen over the first, first four rounds, but well, I do think that made it a sort of strange evening on the whole. Um, a Grand Slam is looked at in totality rather than um, just the last game against an England side that, to be fair, were a lot better but didn't come to play anything other than the spoiler, um, which is obviously their right to do so. Um, you know, Ireland can't dictate the way that England choose to play. Um so not a particularly enjoyable game at the end of what was an enjoyable occasion and an enjoyable Six Nations, I thought was probably the best way to put it. And I know Tommy Bow has been saying, former Test star and obviously former Ulster player, Tommy Bow, who helped Ireland reach Grand Slam dreams back in 2009, he says that these champions, Andy Farrell's champions, are on a whole different level to previous Ireland teams and could already claim to be the country's greatest ever. Do you agree, Adam? I'd love to know what is former teammates think about that you know <laughs> I think they agree yeah I'd say they probably agree as well but I'm just interested that a former Grand Slam winner would say that and I suppose that probably gives it more weight actually that it is a former Grand Slam winner saying that and no sour I, grapes because he's done it himself but he's like you did it better well exa- yeah ex- exactly and I mean I'm, they did it well I was going to say they did it first they didn't do it first <laughs> but they had the 61 year or they put an end to the 61 year yeah. wait and everybody will always remember that Day in Cardiff probably more fondly than that game against England, given the way that um, it went. But mm. I would agree, and I, I would agree with Johnny. Nobody is going to look back on this Grand Slam and think it was tainted because the final performance wasn't as good as the other performances. Like I was surprised that Ireland were a little bit nervous. I 
I sort of thought that was one thing that we maybe wouldn't see from this Ireland team and not not that it's a bad thing that they necessarily did because obviously whenever you're going for a Grand Slam there is that sort of extra tension uh, I imagine during the week they were sort of building up and there was that little bit of extra excitement but I I just kind of thought that this Ireland team given how sort of zen they'd looked throughout the tournament that it would just sort of continue into the final game and well, that's what everybody thought yeah like there was no tension from anybody mm. it was bizarre how stress-free Dublin seemed mm-hmm. on Saturday. It was bizarre how stress-free everybody seemed in the week because everybody just thought it was done. Yeah. And then it was almost like nobody really thought that the players might be really stressed <laughs> out. And the game started. I was like, oh, right, yeah. This, I, this I, could be bad. I personally found, and I know everyone always goes, wants to watch the Six Nations when it usually does finish usually does finish against England around St. Patrick's weekend but and most casual rugby fans will go watch it then but I have never seen the amount of not even casual rugby fans like I know people who couldn't even tell you the first thing about rugby but they were mm. like oh well everyone says we're going <laughs> to everyone's going to beat England yeah. so we'll definitely go watch that um, uh-huh. so I think like that's what you're saying like everyone was like mm. it's a done thing and then at the start when it was like oh god this is a wee bit shaky yeah, actually yeah. <laughs> but even like walking through town the amount of people with like Everly's bags there were clearly a roaring trade done on first time buyers <laughs> of Ireland jerseys <laughs> through the day like um even you know reading Neve Neve Jones's column this week, she's in a very privileged position where she's in the same uh, sort of location as the, as the Ireland men's team because the women's team have now linked up ahead of their Six Nations, and they're all working out of the high performance center. And she was saying, you know, the the guys were so relaxed and so excited. There wasn't really a sense of nervousness or sort of tension over this. It was it was very calm and very relaxed and. So for, so for that to sort of manifest itself in the sort of opening first maybe 15 minutes of the game where England went out into that lead and you kind of thought, well, jeepers, is this all going to come crashing down at the last minute? To get to get back to the original question, you know, do I think this is the best Ireland team there has ever been or, or at the very least I mean it's obviously very hard for me to judge and other people have made this point jo- Johnny made this point actually himself in the uh, uh, in the Irish Independence sort of panel of, of experts sort of giving their opinions you know it's very hard for us to judge against teams that contained you know the likes of Jack Kyle or Mike Gibson Willie John McBride whenever we haven't actually watched them in person mm-hmm. but certainly for, for me it is definitely the best Ireland team that I have seen during my time and I think it's it's just that added depth that I think is the most impressive thing about Ireland you know this this Ireland team is probably the best in in terms of their first 15 like I would say that is also true but the more impressive thing to me is the amount of chopping and changing there has been within this Ireland team of key players who have dropped out key players who have come back in guys stepping up throughout the tournament that to me has been more impressive and that makes them to me the best Ireland team that we have seen in that they have continually hit these high levels over and over even though they haven't been able to play the same team every single week and it seems like every single week there has been some kind of adversity whether it be through selection whether it be through injuries during a game or you know hookers coming on at, at prop or props coming on at hooker flankers throwing into lineouts. every week it just seemed like Ireland were faced with something else and they just continued to swat them aside and they are very deserving Grand Slam champions and we will probably look back on this as one of the most dominant Grand Slams there will potentially ever be on that same sort of note, Andy Farrell has hailed Johnny Saxon as the best player to ever play for Ireland. Um, do you agree, Johnny? I think that I do. And again, with that sort of caveat that Adam was talking about of like players that you have seen, obviously, like it comes down, I suppose, to Saxon or O'Driscoll. And like growing up, it was almost viewed as like a sort of absolute truth that Brian O'Driscoll was. Ireland's best ever rugby player and you were sort of like in this privileged position that your life overlapped with us so you got to see him play and then the idea that like Ireland's or the, the idea that he would, he would be bettered by 
somebody that he actually played with. Like there was an overlap yeah. there of those two guys. Um, always would have seemed really outlandish. But I was sort of making this point the other day. I think whenever you consider Sexton's longevity, bearing in mind that he'll be 38 at the World Cup, bearing in mind everything that he's won, including World Player of the Year, you can make the argument, of course, that O'Driscoll should have won World <laughs> Player of the Year. Um, the fact that he's won two Grand Slams. But I think the probably the biggest part of it as well is Sexton has been Ireland's most important player for more than a decade. And that's incredible when you think about it. Like, O'Driscoll was obviously central for around about that time. Um, you could probably make the argument that Paul O'Connor, there were times... Um, and I stress times, not all, not all the time, maybe not even a lengthy time. There were times when, say, the likes of Paul O'Connell could have been considered Ireland's most important player. There were probably times when, like, John Hayes could have been considered Ireland's most important player, given um, the tight head situation. But um, I think Sexton is now, for me, just edging it on the basis of what he's done really since the last Lions tour. Um, whenever it looked like he was um, on the wane and has come back. Do you agree, Adam? That was a very good answer, by the way, Johnny. I'm very detailed. <laughs> yeah, can I just say yes? And yeah, leave it at that? I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree. Again, yeah, to, to use the same caveat, you know, none of us have seen the, those players, you know, Kyle McBride, Gibson play at, at the peak and there's always that question of if you put those players in the Ireland team now how would they fare now I'm, I completely understand different eras different style of game but you, you sort of get the point I'm making you know mm. where where would these guys stack up against the current crop and again the thing that I would say most is the fact that he is the best Ireland player that has been around during my time yeah. covering the team. And I take Johnny's point about O'Driscoll and I would say the fact that Sexton is still doing it at this stage of his career, yeah, that that to me makes him Ireland's greatest, great, greatest ever player of the professional era, I will say for sure. And I would say probably the greatest player of all time and I think you'll probably not realise it like somehow like Sexton is a world class player but somehow some people still underrate him you know somehow some people still think that um, he's not that influential he is the most I mean he's well cer certainly off the top of my head I can't think of anybody else who is more central to his team success in world rugby at the moment um, Johnny may correct me. There, there may be somebody else, but I, I would say that there is no player in world rugby right now. If you remove them from their team, their team would suffer more than if you remove Jonathan Sexton from this Ireland team. But that's why this Ireland team, because it feeds into what you said before about this Ireland team being the best Ireland team. Like this Ireland team won a Grand Slam without having tagged for long until the fourth game. Jameson Gibson Park missed the start of the championship. Uh, Gary Ringrose missed time. Robbie Henshaw missed time. These are all guys that um, Ireland won the Grand Slam in spite of their absence. Now I know Johnny Sexton didn't play against Italy, but um, like I don't think the Ireland teams of the past win a Grand Slam without those players um, or the players of equivalent standings. Um, but I do think that you're right. Like Sexton is arguably the one player that they still haven't proven that they can win without because over the last seven weeks, they proved that they could win without all those other guys that we all thought were replaceable as well. Like, you know, it's easy to say now, but imagine if you had said two months ago, Ireland are going to win a Grand Slam, but Finley Bielham and Tom O'Toole are going to play really, really important roles. Like, that's no slight on them, but people viewed Furlong as irreplaceable. And like Bielham could have been the best tight head in the competition before he got injured. O'Toole went out and performed in a way that he's now, I think, nailed on for the World Cup. 
Whereas whenever he wasn't even playing for Ulster, um, you were looking at him being like, you know, John Ryan's coming back. He might lose his place if he doesn't, um, you know, if he doesn't have a good Six Nations. And at that stage, you were probably thinking about impressing and training. Well, there's arguably, I would say, his five best games for Ireland have all come during the Six Nations. So, Do you think, moving on to more, maybe, maybe not as happy a topic, um, in terms of what's bringing the game down for, I guess, maybe neutral fans or just non-Ireland fans, um, a red card was given to England fullback Freddie Sheard in Saturday's defeat and it's been called, now I'm doing my air quotes here, for, obviously people can't see me, an utter farce and absolutely ridiculous and that's by some former players. So Shearer percent off just before half time after his elbow made contact with Hugo Keenan's head. Keenan left the field for a head injury assessment, which he failed. Um, former England scrum half Matt Dawson is one of the people that said uh, the officials are showing a lack of understanding of the game and he argued that Stuart was trying his best not to make contact as he and Keenan flew towards each other. Discuss. <laughs> I don't I don't get the trying to not make contact then because I think the safest thing to do would have just been to tackle him. Like I understand that Keenan was dipping down because the ball was on the ground and I understand they were talking about split second stuff. But to me, it's an unnatural reaction to jump in the air and turn your elbow into somebody. Like, I'm not saying he did it on purpose. I think it was completely accidental. I think it was really, I don't know why I would say it was unlucky. Or it was definitely unfortunate. In real time, I didn't think it was a red card. But, like, looking at the replay, I think, like, one, the fact that he leaves his feet, and two, the fact that he turns, whether he's trying to turn his body into him, the net result is he turns his elbow into them. If you... He performed the action that meant that he turned his elbow into the guy's head and he was the one that jumped up, which meant he was at that height. So I th- I don't... Uh, I suppose you have to be careful, careful with the language you use. I don't think it was a harsh red card. I think it was an unfortunate red card. Um, but I do think it was a red card and I say that having not in real time thought that it was. I know Dylan O'Connell from our sister paper in the South, the Irish Independent. I heard him on the radio on the Monday morning and he was saying, you know, I think it's like maybe an orange card, somewhere between a yellow and a red. <laughs> I hate this orange card idea. Like it's, I, I understand why people want it because they're kind of saying, you know, we don't, we don't like the fact that red cards are, and again, because people can't see it, air quotes, ruining the game. <laughs> You know, Pete, and and look, like no nobody wants to see a game decided because the team goes down to fourteen men. No, nobody does. Referees don't, coaches don't, players don't, fans don't. But it, red cards are needed in the game, and you you can't you can't start saying that some incidents are sort of falling between the yellow and the red cards. I I like more what they're trying to do in Super Rugby at the moment, which is. You give a player a yellow card and while the player is off the pitch, the TMO takes a look at it and decides if it needs upgraded to a red card. Mm-hmm. Like I would I would prefer that to an orange card, which is twenty minutes. It to me it's it's either a yellow or a red. And for me, I, I agree with Johnny, it's watching it back, Stuart jumping into Keenan, turning sideways the elbow connecting with his head. To me, it all just looks extremely unnatural. You know, like, it, let's say Keenan recovers that ball and runs, and I know he it's still a knock-on, so it's, you know, it's it's not like he's making a tackle to prevent a try. The The play was dead. But what what's his end goal there? You know, I've heard people say he's he's protecting himself. Well, if you're protecting yourself, you've also got to protect the player that's running towards you. If you're... You know, if if that's an attempt at a tackle, well, that's an, a horrific attempt at a tackle, mm-hmm. because there's no wrapping of the arms, and you've left your feet. So, for for me, it is a red card as well, and I'm surprised that so many former players are defending that because I can guarantee you, if they were the ones on the receiving end of that, they would not be feeling so conciliatory towards Stewart. Do you think it's a bit of a uh... Like, do you think it's a bit of bias? Because, like, well, for example, there's a former England player, I'm only after quoting Matt Dawson, that said that. Like, so do you think it is a little bit of just neutral or or English fans' bias? Or do you think it has actually maybe caused a mark on on Ireland's win because it was a little bit difficult for them up until then, but then after that it was pretty comfortable? 
I think like people are getting carried away with England being better than they were against France. Like they were still rubbish. Like, <laughs> you know, like they didn't score a try until the very end of the game. They had zero line breaks. Like they were more committed. They were better in defense. They, um, their tackles stuck a bit more. But like essentially all they did was reach the baseline of what an international performance should be. Like, um, Ireland, I think we're still going to win anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, do I think do, do I think there's bias? Yeah, I think there is bias essentially, and it comes from people not wanting to see red cards, which is a problem the game's had for quite a while. This idea that essentially um, people don't want the game impacted by a red card, and certainly I think other people will view it differently the way people in Ireland will view it. I don't think it, if you're looking through history, I don't think anybody's going to be like, oh, well, that, that's why they won the Grand Slam. Yeah. In the way that, mm-hmm. you know, people do look back at that Welsh <laughs> championship a few years ago and talk about all the red cards that their opposition got. Um, but I doubt anybody in Wales really cares about it. Um, but like, no, I think Ireland were very much worthy Grand Slam champions. I think you can make the argument that along with 2003, it's probably the most convincing Grand Slam that there's been. And, you know, as we were talking about at the start, like you're talking about um, one pass going to hand against Scotland being the difference between taking maximum points and dropping one, you know. Mm-hmm. So also, we're obviously now finished with Six Nations, getting geared up for the World Cup. Steve Hansen, the man who led the All Blacks to the 2015 World Cup, reckons Ireland's biggest opponents at this year's tournament will be themselves. Now, I'm taking this one quote out of context because he was very complimentary apart from this. But the headline we went with is, uh, he said, if they were the All Blacks, they'd be called the Chokers. What do you think now going into, as we're going to go into the World Cup, what are we predicting? I don't think anybody, like, in New Zealand, was calling New Zealand chokers in 2011 when they scraped by France um, to win a World Cup. So, like, New Zealand are not impervious to the pressure that comes with doing something significant. I do think it's important that Ireland had this experience, though, of because there's not a huge amount of that team that was um, central in 2018. There was a new element to it that um, obviously Andy Farrell has brought in um, post the 2019 World Cup and for all the talk about like you know last year's triple crown being valuable like it's nothing compared to the pressure of a Grand Slam and I would actually be interested to know whether a Grand Slam or a Rugby World Cup quarterfinal will bring more pressure given the history that's um, attached to the two different things in Irish rugby so I do think it was good that um and I think that's maybe the wider point that Hansen is uh, making about Ireland. That was the first time they'd really had to deal with that sort of pressure. And that is instructive and that is helpful going into a World Cup quarterfinal when no matter who the World Cup quarterfinal is against, whether it be France, whether it be New Zealand, Ireland are going to be under pressure given their just horrendous record at that stage of the competition. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is Ireland are the best team in the world right now. So there naturally is pressure. They are favourites to win the tournament, and rightly so. And there's I think the boogies actually have them as third favourites. Really? Yeah. Behind France and New Zealand? Yeah. Really? I would not have said that. I think Ireland are the favourites to win this tur- uh, to win this World Cup. But n- naturally, there is pressure that obviously comes with being the number one side in the world. Everyone's gunning for you. By the world rankings, you are supposed to win the World Cup. You know, as as much as world rankings, you know, they are subjective and, and whatnot. Theoretically, they're supposed to represent that Ireland are the best team in the world and therefore they should win the World Cup. And you also have the added internalized pressure and externalized from fans, the pressure of finally reaching the semifinals. Like we're not we're not even talking about winning the tournament. Yeah. There is just pressure from within Ireland to reach the final four. So I, I understand where Hansen is coming from in that, you know, Ireland have been jokers in World Cups. Like, that, that, that is the bottom line. You know, like, there are circumstances and situations in previous World Cups where 
they probably should have reached the semi-finals. And if I don't know it if any of that was to do with choking, though. I mean, like well, no, twenty nineteen, the All Blacks were better. Well, no, twenty fifteen, well, they had so many injuries. <laughs> twenty eleven, they should have won, but I don't think it was choking. I think twenty eleven was complacency. Um, I suppose two thousand and seven. I mean, you could say it was the biggest example of choking, but that was. Um, player on rest, I guess, is maybe the fairest <laughs> way to describe it. Uh, 99 was probably choking, but like that wasn't even to get <laughs> into a semi-final. Mm. But, but one of the other points that Hansen made was Ireland's biggest enemies are going to be themselves. And I agree with that mm-hmm. because, again, I think Ireland are the best team in the world. So if you're the best team in the world, the only team that can beat you as yourself by mm. either not being on top of your game whenever it matters or not being mentally prepared for a game. So I would agree what with him. France in France? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, again, you know... That comes I, with a I, mental I, toll yeah, too. Yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah I, th- I think that factors into the mental side of the game. So, like, I think... I, I would agree. I think Ireland's biggest enemies at the World Cup will be themselves and obviously France are going to be difficult the All Blacks will be difficult South Africa will be difficult but this Ireland team is the best team in the world right now Scotland no we're not (laughs) come on look look, the fifth fifth best side of the world to all to all our Scottish listeners you guys had a great Six Nations you were one, yeah, you, you were one half away from actually becoming a bad Six Nations because if Italy had beaten them, they have a completely different perspective on that Six Nations campaign. That's all I'm going to say. But they're not up with that sort of top tier of, of international rugby right now. You know, the the winner of this World Cup is going to come from the, one of those four teams. Surely. I wrote a column this week about what it would be like to be like an Irish rugby fan in their 20s rather than like anyone who lived through the 90s and Adam just like perfectly encapsulated yeah. what it's like. Of, That's <laughs> he, what you based it on. Yeah, he, like, he, he took that sort of patronising tap on the head to Scotland. He's given a good try, but come on. No, look, look, look hold, I want to defend myself here. Scotland Scotland had a good Six Nations. Like they were impressive. I, I still I still stand by the the belief that if that second half against Italy had gone a different way, then you have a completely different perspective. Oh, you're 100% on the right. Six like, they, they beat a rubbish English team first up, and then they beat Wales. A rubbish Wales. A rubbish Wales <laughs> team. <laughs> then they gave it a good crack against France. Weren't very good, I didn't think, against Ireland, and then were pretty much a refereeing decision away from losing to Italy. <laughs> well, they gave it a good crack in the first half against... Yes, sorry. Uh, against Ireland, and then... Kind of went, uh, kind of went south in, in the second half against an Ireland team who had so many players playing in weird positions. Um, but like, I I do think Scotland are still building something. Like, I still think there are there is a way for this Scotland team to go, and it would be great to see them push on even further from here. But right now, is this Scotland team in contention for the World Cup? Realistically, no. Like, do do you see Scotland beating at least two of those four teams to get? No, I to, don't. But I do think title. that it's it does make it much more difficult for one of those teams, either Scotland or Ireland, to succeed at the World Cup because they will have a live game against the team that is the fifth best team in mm. the world. So, like, you know, Ireland, to use the Irish example, right? Ireland will play two of the best five teams in the world in the pool stages. Mm-hmm. Whereas England, who are the sixth best team in the world, don't have to play a team that's better than... I suppose you can make the same argument with Ireland given that they're top of the rankings, but England are sixth in the rankings and don't play a team that's better than them until the semi-finals. Whereas Ireland will play two teams in the top five in the pool stages and then either have to play France in France, with France looking a lot more like France of last year in the last two weeks, or New Zealand, who, regardless of how they look at the minute, are still New Zealand. Which is another reflection. There's been enough column inches on this written, but just how ridiculous the World Cup draw is that it's made so far in advance. 
I used to think this, but now I'm just here for the chaos because this is insane. <laughs> like, this is the worst this has ever been. Like, the top five teams in the world being on one side of the draw and a rubbish England team only needing to be better than Australia to get to the semifinals. That's, you know, that's the kind of thing I want to see. It gives us something to talk about, to be fair. It fills the areas. <laughs> well, exactly. I've written numerous <laughs> numerous pieces about this down the years, whereas now I'm just like, you know what? I'm curious to see how this goes. It'll be curious to see how it goes whenever it actually gets to that stage and we'll look back now at the end and be like, do you remember when we were talking about it and it is worse than we imagined? One, one question I want to ask before we move on from Ireland and it, it sort of goes back I, I probably should have asked this earlier whenever we were discussing Sexton and, and Ireland in general is Andy Farrell the best coach that Ireland have ever had? <laughs> it's very interesting because similar to the Sexton O'Driscoll thing whenever Joe Schmidt was in charge Joe Schmidt was the uniform answer for who is Ireland's, not even just Ireland rugby, but who is the best coach in the history of Irish sport. And it was universally agreed that it was Joe Schmidt. Now, because of the way things ended, that idea has been sort of chipped away at. And now there's almost, because Andy Farrell is so unlike Joe Schmidt, there's almost this idea that Farrell has come in revolutionized um, something that needed to be smashed apart um, in the sense that, you know, he's relaxed. He's an awful lot um, more like a player, I suppose, having been a player more recently. And um, just this idea that Carden House was this suffocating environment and now it's the best environment that anybody's ever had. And it always seems like a sort of implicit dig at Joe Schmidt but Joe Schmidt did things as an Irish coach that nobody had ever done before so it's an interesting debate I think whether like Joe Schmidt's contribution to Irish rugby has actually been in the eyes of um, the wider public actually being diminished by what Andy Farrell is doing but I suppose the answer is you can't know yet because if Andy Farrell goes off and wins the World Cup, then he is the best yeah. Irish coach of all time. Objectively, definitely. Yeah, whereas I suppose what we have at the minute is Farrell, Farrell is building on what Schmidt did. And to be fair, Schmidt built on what Declan Kidney did. And to be fair, Declan Kidney built on what Eddie O'Sullivan had done. Mm. Because we are talking about um, two and a half decades of progress. Um Yes, so I suppose that was a long-winded way to say it. I don't know yet. It's all yet <laughs> well, to be seen. Yeah, yeah well, the, the, this this wasn't a dig on Joe Schmidt. I mean, like, you, you look at... No, sorry, I'm not saying you're having yeah. a dig on Joe Schmidt. It's just a sense that yeah. um, seems to be creeping in places. It, it just, I just find it so interesting listening to, like, both of us talk about, you know, how this is the best Ireland team and that was the most dominant Grand Slam. So how, how much of that is down to Andy Farrell being the best coach how much is it down to just the players he has at his disposal? You know, like what we're uh, maybe essentially the question that I'm actually asking is how much of Ireland's success is down to A, the players, B, the coaching, C, the environment, D, the circumstances, you know, the, the fact that, oh, all right, look, this, this, is, this is a great Ireland team, but they played a rubbish England, a rubbish Wales, um, on the same championship. And, and, in the second half, Scotland didn't put up much of a resistance whenever they played them. You know, where, uh, essentially, you know, how, how where, where do you sort of put the majority of Ireland's success down to? I I think with things like this, and like mo most times in sport, I think sometimes it's just a perfect storm. Like it's literally just mm. a perfect storm of things. And like what you're saying, Johnny, in terms of like um just building on recent successes or successes of the past. Sorry, and um, like I wanted to point out before the podcast ended too that Ireland actually got two grand slams in the space of 24 hours because under 20s. Um, you know, they, they followed the lead of their senior counterparts and they got the clean sweep and they edged England out in front of a sold-out Musgrave Park and it's the second year running um, they were crowned Grand Slam champions in Cork and that's that means Ireland have won three under 20s Grand Slams in five years. So I think even when you look at like the youth that's coming up, it's probably like, like you say, like it's a, it's a case of like managers building an old managers' foundations but also like the institutions in general 
just getting yeah. better. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think an awful lot of it is the pathways that have produced all these great players. Like Ireland have never had more good players than they have now. And I think, yeah, that's probably 100%. It's like all of these different things coming together at the same time. Whereas if you think about 14, 15, the championships rather than the Grand Slams, they were probably viewed as Joe Schmidt's successes in the sense that Joe Schmidt was seen as the most important thing about that Ireland team or maybe the marriage between Joe Schmidt and Johnny Sexton um, that had come through at Leinster in the preceding years during those European Cups. But um, cult of personalities may be a bit strong, but like Schmidt was definitely seen as a driving factor, whereas I think reputationally there's a possibility that Farrell um, doesn't get the same plaudits because it's seen as more... Um, varied contributing factors but yeah Adam I think like it's a very fair question because Farrell is obviously a huge part of it and the environment that he's created like I suppose people can think um, it's overplayed but when you get the amount of players and players of the stature and longevity saying that this is the best environment that they've ever been a part of and how important it is um, it would be silly to overlook that I think and speaking on like the the psychology of it all and bringing all the success in, um, Adam, you've been writing in the Belfast Telegraph about Ulster this weekend and how fullback Mick Lowry admits that a desire to be part of future Ireland squads is what's driving on the province to bigger and better things this season. Um, and now the internationals, including Stuart McCluskey and Nick Timoney, are back in the Ulster camp ahead of Saturday's clash with the Bulls. Lowry admits there has been a renewed energy, particularly with the World Cup places on the line. Um, what are we thinking for Saturday then? Are you thinking we're gonna we're gonna ride this good wave of of good me- good mental health when it comes <laughs> to winning rugby? I mean, it's it's a good sort of two waves to be riding on. You know, Ulster have their own wave that they're they're building off of from the from the Sharks game and from the Cardiff games where they played quite well and they're trying to take this into the end of the season. You've got the guys coming back from Ireland camp who are obviously going to provide a lift. You know, even if they themselves don't come springing back in through the doors of uh, of Ravenhill. You know, the guys will be excited to see them and congratulate them. And as Lowry says, and especially for guys like him who are sort of on that Ireland bubble where you can maybe break your way into that World Cup squad if you have a good finish to the season and then you go away in the summer and have a few good warm-up games with Ireland... There, there's naturally a feeling of I want that, I want to be that guy who's bounding back into training after winning a Grand Slam. I want to be that guy bounding back into training after being the the first Ireland team to reach the semi-finals of the World Cup or potentially going on and winning the World Cup. You know, it it naturally makes you want it even more. And I'm I'm actually quite interested. You know how it feels down in Leinster where the majority of players are coming back in who are now Grand Slam winners compared to Ulster where there's only six or seven of them are coming back in as Grand Slam winners and only three of them actually played in the game that clinched the Grand Slam win. You know, what are the sort of the different atmospheres like? But for Ireland, yeah, or sorry, for, for Ulster, you just have to try and marry these two waves into the perfect wave that brings you into Saturday and in, in the perfect uh, form and I think naturally there is just going to be the the energy there because you're now into the business end of the season you've gone from international success into the business end where Ulster know that you've got three regular season games left to try and clinch second place, steal it away from the Stormers uh, and get home uh, advantage in the, in the semi-finals potentially then you've got your European game against Leinster which is going to be absolutely massive, and we'll talk about that next week, of course, but that's your European season on the line. And then you're going into the URC playoffs. Like Right now, you're going from a Grand Slam win into every game with your club as a must-win from here on out. And naturally, you're just trying to get on that wave and ride it for as long as possible. I don't know. Um, Andy Farrell said McCluskey was unbelievably unlucky to miss the Slam Heights. Devastating. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> devastated. So is that just your only? <laughs> no more than that's, it, that's, it, that's all I've got to contribute. Absolutely devastated. Andy Farrell, worst coach in Irish history. <laughs> to be fair, like um, if it, McCluskey had been on the bench at twenty three, would he have played fullback? Like 
yeah, he can do it. With Henshaw, like Henshaw <laughs> would have had to go to fullback, which we know wasn't good. So um, no, no, I think no, it was look, maybe look, good for all concerned. The team no, was on the bench. I, 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 I was definitely not advocating for McCluskey at twenty three because you, you need that versatility on the bench. I, I miss do, seeing him though. I, I do. <laughs> Aki was great on Saturday. I thought Aki had his best game of the championship on uh, on Saturday. I still think McCluskey should have started. I still think he was the man who should have had that jersey in his hands. What do you think, Johnny, then, for, for the weekend, now that we're sort of focusing, we've got the next couple of weeks, are all Ulster-focused? Yeah, it's going to be interesting because the Bills are in a really, really bad run of form. Like, they haven't had their internationals, to be fair, but, like, going back to the other side of Christmas, they've lost seven of their last nine in all competitions and a different panel, sort of, but, like, they shipped over 100 points in their two Curry Cup games over the last couple of weeks. Probably not something that an awful lot of people were paying attention to given the Six Nations going on, but um, they've been in horrible form. Um, so it be interesting to see, first of all, what sort of team that they bring over given that they are in Europe um, the next the next week, like like Ulster are themselves. Like, um, the Stormers, we know, are bringing a stronger team to Leinster than we maybe thought that they were going to. Um, so we don't know the Bulls' travelling party just yet. But I think also should win. Like, home advantage against the South African side should count for a lot. I know the Bulls did win in the RDS last year, but um, I think also should win. And they, they need to win because, you know, we mentioned that Stormers game and the squad that they're bringing over to Leinster, but there is a very real chance that Ulster could be going into this game on Saturday with a chance to go second with two games left. So it's a massive game in that respect albeit we don't know what's going to happen in that Leinster Stormers game just yet. And Ulster maybe have a wee bit more to think about that than maybe they wanted to because Ulster assistant coach Roddy Grant, pardon me, Roddy Grant is still hopeful that the province and the IRFU can strike a deal to keep Ian Henderson at Ravenhill. Um, we actually had a few listener questions about this, Johnny. What is the latest now? Um, well, we talked about this a few weeks ago and we talked about Toulouse and like, as we'd sort of said at the time, I wasn't hearing that Toulouse was a live prospect, that it was a real thing, um, which was of no doubt a relief to everyone. Wouldn't be like an Irish player to use a French team to boost their contract. <laughs> Say the old uh, Brian O'Driscoll Beeritz thing in it. Um, but in less reassuring news, what I'm hearing now is that this Japan prospect is a, li- is a live thing. Like, um, that could happen. And... I know it's like whenever we're talking about this the last time, I was like, I would definitely go, but like. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope he doesn't though. He's not me. Row back, row back, row back. <laughs> but like, let's, let's weigh this up, shall we? <laughs> 31. If he goes to Japan, he could probably play for another four years, making more money per year than he could theoretically make here for two years. That's some mods there, like. Isn't it? Yeah. Like. That's a lot of yen to be banking for the future. Japan's great. See a different way of life. He's not going to make another World Cup after this one. He could theoretically make another Lions tour, I suppose. Um, But it would be his third go at it. And then it's just the Ulster situation. What would it mean to him to win something and to captain Ulster to winning something? But does he think he's going to do that? I don't know. When do you think, do you have any sort of, in your head, do you have a time frame of when you think this is going to get sorted? Well, we're already into a time when it should be sorted. Yeah. You know, like, we're now after the Six Nations. Um, The RFU obviously have other players that they have to get tied down as well. Um, One in in particular. Um, so you would wonder if the interest from elsewhere almost forces the RFU's hand in a way and says, look, this is our final offer. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what we can give you. Make the call. Or whether it's one of those things that gets... Um, not that it would be a PR disaster, but like it wouldn't be a particularly good look um, if Henderson were to leave. It would be out of Ulster's control, but it wouldn't be... <laughs> they would be the ones that would probably be impacted the most. Admittedly, Henderson hasn't played a great amount for them, but um, I would say if he's leaving, it will be carefully managed when it is uh, when it is announced. 
it wouldn't be, a, I was going to say like a handling, as we say in the, in the low country. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be announced any time close to season ticket renewal for us being yeah. posted out or something like that, put it that way. Well, um, if you're Ulster, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're losing your only centrally contracted player. I know I know, Stock, well, I know Stock, Stock, Stockdale is centrally contracted at the moment, but we are operating on the understanding that he is not going to get a central contract next year and he's going to go on to a provincial contract. So from an Ulster perspective, you are losing the only player who would be offered a central contract for next season. And you're you're in a position where if he left, Ulster would not have any centrally contracted players next season. Get now, the central contract of Jeff to Mangal. <laughs> I'm all for that, but <laughs> but but, but, Irish but, but do do you think about that from an Ulster perspective? It doesn't As bear a, thinking about from an Ulster perspective. Well, it's a disaster for Ulster. Yeah, like. If, as much as central contracts aren't the be all and end all of you know determining how good your squad is or you know how how prestigious your squad is or anything like that, to have no players on the IRFU's books, it's not secure. It's 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 not secure, but it's just not a good look. You know, like you what the IRFU are essentially saying is we don't consider any of your players important enough that we are going to contract them. Well, con- like central contracts are. It's in the name. It's for central players. Like yeah. if Henderson leaves, Ulster don't have a central player. Mm-hmm. They don't have anyone that would be guaranteed to start. Mm-hmm. They don't have anyone that would be guaranteed to be in a match day twenty three. Like, and th- think think about who. If Henderson's not there, Ireland. Or sorry, if Henderson's not there, Ulster don't have a player that is. Yeah. If everybody was fit and Ireland were in a World Cup final tomorrow, would be playing. Henderson is the only one of those players. And but who, who's just, going? To, who's going to be the next one? You know, like who. Who's the next player that you think might be bumped up to a central contract? Well, I think I mean the the case of Stockdale shows the sort of vagaries of this. You know, mm. like um, things can change. Like it wouldn't be a surprise to me if a player like James Hume over the next eight weeks rediscovered mm. his mojo, and then we're back in the situation that we were last summer of saying, you know, is he a starting Ireland player? Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Balakun. Um, became an Ireland starter, mm. but admittedly, like low, uh, we're just off a of Six Nations Grand Slam where Low and Hansen were two of the best players. But mm-hmm. I don't think it would be a sign that, oh, Ulster are rubbish now because Ulster still have good Irish qualified, relatively mm-hmm. young players. But I just don't, like, I think people wouldn't know how to react. I think people yeah. would, like, the sky would be falling. Like, this hasn't <laughs> happened in 15 years. Like, Tommy yeah. Bow was obviously the main one, but Tommy Bow, Roger Wilson and Neil Best leaving in 2008, that was the last time Ulster lost a frontline, homegrown mm. international player. No, like I'm, I'm not saying that Ulster suddenly are a bad team because they don't have any centrally contracted players, but even, even think about, you know, even financially, you know, the fact that you're having to pay for all of your players, like none of your players are contracted by the RFU, you know, all right. I, I guess Ulster are losing Henderson. You know, it's, it's it's not like Henderson is suddenly coming back onto their books and they're having to pay for him. But that's happening with Stockdale. If you think about if Stockdale got another central contract, think about where the money could be redistributed to. It could be keeping a player that is going to leave at the end of the season. It could be attracting a slightly better quality import player. It could be. I don't know, could be pumped into the academy. That's losing centrally contracted players, be it they're dropping down onto provincial contracts or they're going elsewhere, only hurts the province. Mm-hmm. And just want to point out for listeners, <laughs> this is recorded. This is being recorded currently on Tuesday the 21st of March. I was going to say my other. So for all we know, with how this goes out, things have changed, but I somehow did it. Um, I mean, like, to be fair, this is a... As Adam sort of alluded to earlier, this is a historic negotiating gambit. You know, it's like <laughs> mm. CJ Stander was going to Montpellier in the newspapers, like, I think it was about two years ago. Maybe it was three years ago. And like literally that afternoon, the IRFU announced that he had signed a contract mm. with Ireland. Like, but anyway, my understanding of it is that the interest from Japan is real. Like, 
In terms of as well, we're going to finish and we're going to do a quick fire round because we're running out of time. But Johnny, Schools Cup this year, because we were talking about it, um, unfortunately for the schools involved, wasn't the most dramatic rugby thing that happened that weekend. Um, but it was a classic final between Campbell College and Inst. Had been knotted at 17-17 as the clock turned red. But with both sides increasingly desperate to avoid sharing the trophy, Jacob Boyd authored the most dramatic of conclusions with his charging score from distance to seal his school Inst's first title since 2017. Uh, great game. Yeah, it was a really good game. Um, good back and forth. Campbell, who I was probably more impressed with in the semi-finals than I was with Inst, started really well. Um, looked to have a real sort of foothold in the game. Inst came back well, and then um, you thought at that point that they had the game completely in control. And then a late try from Campbell and conversion as well because it's easy to overlook that the especially in schoolboy rugby it's easy to overlook that the conversion had to be made as well and then you have this crazy situation where for 12 minutes plus 4 minutes of injury time it looks like it might be a draw and we end up with a shared trophy um, for the first time on the field since 1996 and I know that um, obviously in the COVID year the final wasn't played and was shared but um, yeah a crazy way to win and lose a final but uh Personally, I think less crazy than if we had ended up with... Uh, I was going to say both teams celebrating, but we would have had neither team celebrating. <laughs> who, who celebrates a draw? Like, you know. But that, one thing I'd like to add is just the... For, firstly, the quality in sort of extra time after the clock had hit 80 for neither team to make a mistake that led to the game ending for quite a long time after the clock hit 80 was extremely impressive. But also Lucas Kenny is going to be some player. Like Campbell's fullback, he was playing on a different level to everyone else. So definitely keep an eye out for him in the future. Got good youth foundations in Ulster too, clearly. Um, well, you know, six players in the under-19s minus the four players from the final. So that's 10, you know, well, everybody gets very up in arms about Ulster representation in underage sides when it's low. But, you know, there's 10 players essentially at under-19s level. It's not hyped up enough now. <laughs> <laughs> um, remember, you can catch up with all that all that info about Schools Cup, Ireland, Ulster on belfasttelegraph.co.uk from both Johnny and Adam. And of course, when you pick up the paper, it's the Belfast Telegraph paper. And you can now follow us on Twitter at Belltel Rugby. Is that right, Adam? <laughs> you can indeed, at Belltel Rugby. <laughs> and tweet us any listener questions or any feedback. And have a good week. And we will see you next week. Thanks for listening.